My name is Daniel Fraga. Uh, like Owen said, I'm the co-host of TechnoSocial Podcast, uh, and I'm a design consultant who's, uh, I, I, I live in Copenhagen. I work for Accenture. And in this session, I'm going to be explaining to you what I understand by this term, ontological design, uh, which is the subject of my brand new book, uh, which is available on Amazon. You can find the link by scanning the code. You can find out more stuff about it on www.fraga.space. So my talk is going to be divided in three parts. First, we're going to talk about why. Why are we talking about ontological design? Why is it important for you? Two, how does it work? What are the principles behind it? And then three, what are the risks, possibilities, and means involved in it? This is just to give you a little overview of how it's going to go. So today I'm going to tell you a story, okay? A story about unprecedented technological possibilities. One of the weird things, okay, about being alive today, besides the fact that we are alive and we're humans and if you think about it, that's really weird in and of itself. It has to do with the new possibilities that we have access to. Everybody knows that we have incredible access to medicine, to food, to information and transportation. We live like the kings of old would only imagine to be able to live back in the old days, right? But what if I told you that we are today capable of the wildest possible type of brainwashing ever conceived of in history. But there are people out there today who have a really, uh, uh, a really big chance of taking over the dreams and the freedoms of huge, huge, huge numbers of humans, of brainwashing billions upon billions in the most total way imaginable. Moreover, what if I told you these people are absolutely eager to get this, to get to this point? This is not the province of crazy conspiracy theories or hyperbole or contrived science fiction, okay? This is the vanguard of the technology and design industries. And this is set to explode into the mainstream in the next 10 to 20 years. That's what, I'll gonna, what I will be talking about today. This is about discovering a new weapon, a new skill, a new way of thinking. It's basically an update on the old disciplines of marketing, of propaganda, and design, of course, but also updating the old disciplines and subjects such as religion, storytelling, and belief itself. This is the type of thinking that it is only possible in the era of AI and of the internet. We couldn't have come up with this before. And to make matters even more dramatic, it is not only the case that we can explore this, that we can think about this, but I argue that we actually, we must think this through and we must have a point of view on this. So I consult with clients daily and I'm, I'm basically paid to understand their needs. They need better ways to have conversations with their customers, their users. They need to sell more, create better products than the competition. And in many ways, we know this. This is obvious. This has always been the case. Advertising has always been about convincing people to buy stuff they don't need. We could even argue that religion is at least a little bit about social control. Today's influencers online, don't they seek that same goal when they speak to their fan base to attain influence and control over people? And given the nature of these practices of social control, People are always looking for better means, better ways to achieve their goals. The thing is, in the near future, those better ways can become way better. And this has to do with what I believe to be an innovation, not only in technology, but also on design. 
We are in an arms race. Designing the human perception is the prize of that arms race. We must respond. This is the prize, gentlemen, for which the most talented people in the planet are currently fighting for, the ability to define, determine, even own human perception. To put it really bluntly, it's brainwashing with AI. The prize is owning minds at scale, dominating the hearts and minds with the most sophisticated technologies and design methodologies available. That's what the CIA always did, but now it needs to be updated. This is one of the reasons why I began to think about ontological design. It is our job, our duty to be realistic and to try to understand what the fuck is going on. We cannot sit still. The term ontological uh, comes from the Greek and it, 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 in the philosophical tradition, it refers to uh, the inquiry about being, existence, becoming. So the term ontological design really refers to this deep effect that design has. And it's the deepest one possible because today we must understand the power that these new technologies can have on our lives, on the lives of those that we love and what the powers that be are preparing for us. Who is going to win this arms race? Of course, money is going to be a deciding factor. You know, people with a lot of power, with a lot of resources, employees and advanced technology, this is going to have a massive impact on who ends up having you know, an advantage on this arms race. But today I'm going to speak to you not about these factors, but about another range of factors that I believe to be even more central to our problem. I don't think this is one of those problems that you can just throw money at to solve. The central bit of this problem for me is skill. Skill to create by using the methods of ontological design. Because as we will be seeing, this is not just another form of design, like graphic design, where you're creating visual assets or digital product design where you're just making apps or websites. The product of ontological design is the human being itself. We're not designing objects, we're not designing chairs, we're designing people and their minds. And I do understand that this may not be for everyone. This is not a happy subject, it is not pleasant, and it can lead us to think about some very dark things. Proceed at your own risk. But friends, we are on the verge of a new era. Every major technological innovation that comes in disrupts society. The steam engine reinvented the 19th century. Radio and television reinvented the 20th century. AI will reinvent the 21st. Now, whoever understands how to operate in the era of AI is going to attain an impossible advantage. The social structures of today, that we live in today, are going to look like activisms of the stone age by the end of the century. We're going to live in a new age with new gods, with new memes, new social structures, new rules, new social classes. And they're all going to be supported by this technological innovation, by impossible computational intelligence, and the best case scenario, by skillful and friendly ontological designers. The coming artificial intelligences are gonna be very powerful. Their sheer computing power will enable uh, new forms of society and government to emerge. But like I said, side by side with them, or maybe even behind them, there will be ontological designers because that is one of the affordances of these new technologies. Some of these designers are going to be good guys, but not all of them. And they are just humans. So we can expect for there to be competition. So what I want to tell you today is that we do not necessarily have to be complete victims of this arms race. 
we can understand how it is taking place and maybe in a good in a good day position ourselves so as to take advantage of it so here is how it works ontological design is this idea that has been around since at least the 90s and which is regaining some traction in the context of the digital age Authors like Tony Fry, Tenny Winograd, and Fernando Flores, they've all explored this topic in their own work, directly under and or indirectly in their own way. However, the main explicit proponent of this term is an Australian design professor called Anne-Marie Willis. She's proposed an interpretation of Heidegger's philosophy applied to design. Her conceptual innovation, in my view, was radical when compared to more traditional ways of thinking about design. This is, this is the core of ontological design. She argues that the subject is designed and influenced by their environment in a feedbacking fashion. There's a co-creative feedback loop between the subject and their context. What does this mean? We humans design our worlds. We build buildings. We create objects. If you look around you right now, look around you right now. The most natural thing in this room right now is you. Most artifacts around you have been designed. Somebody designed your chair, your mug, your clothes, your glasses, all the way to your shoes and your smartphone. Everybody knows this. Somebody designed these objects. What we often overlook, however, is the fact that these creations also create us. They design us in return. They, de they determine how we react, how we interact with them. The chair that I'm sitting on right now, it allows me to sit in one specific way. It discriminates between the modes of being that it allows me. By simply existing, this chair is telling my body how to exist in space. It's telling me that sitting down is one of those ways and maybe standing on the chair, you can do that to reach a high place, but that's not what you're going to do right now because it's uncomfortable. There is a specific order, an implicit command in these objects. Wearing clothes does the same thing. The, the clothes that we wear amplify our body's ability to keep a stable body temperature. From a strictly functional perspective, clothes are prosthetics for the skin. Wherever pieces of clothing or chairs are created and they're used, ontological design can be said to be at play. First, we design our tools and then they design us in return. And this leads me into the following. The idea that human bodies have, stri strictly speaking, no limits. This is a really, really central quote by Robert Pepperell. Consciousness, our minds, and the environments, reality, cannot really be separated. They're continuous. You are not the same person on a church as you are in a library or in a nightclub or in a festival. No finite division can be drawn between the environment, the body, and the brain. The human is identifiable, but not definable. What does this mean? That there's no one defining moment in space-time where we can say my body ends and my surroundings begins. They are, there are continuous fields of influence between, between them. So according to Pepperell, human, and this is something that I really subscribe to and it's important that we think in this way, a human is not a static thing. It's not a category that doesn't change. No, it's a set of functions. It's, it's not something static with well-defined boundaries. Bodies, minds, and tools, continuous. Our tools are extensions of our bodies and of our abilities, 
A car extends our locomotive ability, quickly transporting us across vast distances. A glass cup improves our ability to consume liquids. Our shoes expand the abrasive resistance of the soles of our feet. They protect us from getting our feet hurt so we can walk a lot of miles comfortably. This sounds simple, but the implications are very deep. Both the Hubble telescope or the average eyeglasses augment the information processing capability of our optic nerves. If our ancestors didn't have access to the plow, the hoe, or even a vest, we wouldn't be here. These prosthetics augment what is usually referred to as the physical human body. They are extensions of our senses and of our muscles. So from this perspective, which we could call post-humanism, as Robert Pepperell tell, uh, defines it, we are an entity composed of flows, of functions and processes that are augmented in a variety of ways. But we need to go further. What about words? What about music, currencies, ideologies, social rules, grammar? How, does the, how do these things extend us? What do they mean? Here, guys, is where it gets juicy. Fictions are also tools. <clears throat> they extend our being into the world. They give us meaning. They place us in a symbolic order without which we could not survive. They are as much a part of our extended bodies as hammer, hammers or shoes. They help mediate human interaction with the world. Um, they're crucial. And without them, we cannot exist. And this is where... It, it gets interesting because the power of fictions becomes incredibly real. So we already know that we can design our environments and objects and that they define us in turn as subjects. Chairs, clothing, and glasses, all these things have an effect back on us. They invent how we exist in space and, and time. But what about the fictions that structure our reality? What impact can we have on a subject by designing the very stories that frame how that subject lives in the world. This is where we come closer and closer to the weird term brainwashing. So guys, here's a little shot of darkness, a little secret that is probably not supposed to be told in public. So I mean that many something that many people may find unpalatable, but take it, it's fun. Truth is a function of social cohesion. And discourses about truth are its interface. What is a regime of truth? It's basically what passes as true in any given society. It's an interface between people. These are things that we all agree to be true and extend our social capacity. Because we agree that certain things are true, society gets to work together. We are currently probably all well aware of how the culture wars are rapidly fighting for who gets to say what counts as true and what doesn't count as true, defining terms. Culture itself, we can even go crazy and say that it's nothing but that struggle, the struggle to find agreement with others, to cohere, to make societies, to say this is true and this is wrong. So the thing is today, truth as an interface, truth as a social interface, truth as an extension of the human body becomes designable. What I wanna say goes way deeper than just your everyday Jordan Peterson notion of postmodern relativism. I'm not here to be an activist, to push some thrift store brand of relativism or to say that there's some high immutable truths that you really, really need to follow guys. I don't care about that. There's other people who can tell you exactly what truths to follow, but 
that's the boring bit. I'm here to give you a little bit of electricity. The thing is the idea that truth as an interface for how we relate to the world, but also as an interface for how we relate to ourselves in our own lives. The idea that this can be designed, it's a fucked up idea. It, 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 it means that our very intimate perceptions of reality can be subjected to creative projects. What it means is that skilled people leveraging skillful means and advanced technologies can invent ways of being, can invent ways of believing. They can throw you into a different reality. This is not an easy realization, right? Our realities can be designed. Shit. Our lives are based on fictions that someone designed. Maybe it was chance. Maybe it was some propagandist. Shit. So we're left in a paradox, right? We both need, on one side, we need stories. We need fictions. We need moralities. As much as we need shoes and clothing. We need them for our social and internal lives even to make sense. But we also understand that morality is malleable. It can become a commodity. It can be designed. It can be manipulated. Morality is a fiction that designs us, but without the real weight of this fiction, we couldn't exist. So what do we do? The answer here, guys, is not to desperately invent a new God, a new morality that embar embraces everything, a new beyond a new absolute super meta-morality as so many desperately cling to. The trick here is to, tr is to learn to live with the absence of morality, to hold this uneasy truth every single fucking day. The easy thing would be to find a structure and to just decide, okay, this is what I'm going to believe now. And this is true. And I'm going to just not look at anything else. But if we are going to be truly... true ontological designers, if we're going to in my view, answer the call of being in this ethical manner, we must do the hard thing. We must learn to live with the absence of a true structure, or rather, with the idea that truth is not a noun, but a verb. To create, to keep inventing, to keep moving. This is what I feel. There's a profound reality to illusion. Societies today uh, are, are kind of saturated from, from illusion. Uh, we desperately need, we all know this, adequate truths, adequate new realities that can sustain us who are its subjects in this really strange technological era. We all know this. We all crave this. We all look at the cosmos and feel like this, this underlying horror. We all ask ourselves, what the fuck is the meaning of all of this? But there's a reason why we right now are meeting here. It's time that not only the kings and the pharaohs and the tech giants and the media conglomerates or worst case scenario, dull money managing bureaucrats. It's time that it's not only them to create the valleys of our world. It is also not enough to leave the valleys of our world at the mercy of the internet or capitalism or even priests of an older obsolete age. My message is that design can take up that task and by doing it methodically, Oops. Sorry, I changed the slides here. But by doing it methodically, we have a unique strategic advantage. The God that animated the old stories that don't really hold up today in the era of Coca-Cola. That God must be spoken to today once again, continually. That truth is not static. It is a verb that we must learn to conjugate again and again and again.
And this is important because there's a very weird war going on right now at the realm of truth, at the realm of mind, at the realm of memes. Neumahia is a term that if you, if you take the word etymologically, it comes from the Greek nous, which means mind, and mahia, which means war or conflict or struggle or fight. It's a term used by, you know, a Russian geopolitical theorist, strategist, and philosopher, an overall horrible person called Alexander Dugan. And he uses this term to analyze the current geopolitical struggles of the world. The term refers to mind battles, battles waged on the sphere of mind, for the mind, and through the mind. So I completely disagree with Duganism. But I need to be pragmatic enough. We need to realize that this term is super correct. It is a precise term. Yes, there is a war happening in the new sphere in the dimensions that we can be referring to as the dimensions of mind, of truth, of, of, of the realm of the spiritual or the theological even. And yes, like he says, modernity and technology are at the crux of this war. This is the war happening at the sphere of mind amplified by the networked paradigm that impacts us all at an ontological level. I mean, we are on the internet for fuck's sake. We are exchanging words. Right now we're not at war, but the memes themselves wage war through us. Basically what this means is that the arms race has kind of seeped outside of the physical. It's not so much about creating better bombs, but now it even seeps into uh, the realm of propaganda, persuasion, influencia, influence, and, and, and impacting human perception. This was always the case previously, but today that arms race has reached a crucial singularity, crucial point. Today, as I've told you, as, as we've been going through, we are able to impact human perception and subjectivity with a vastly greater capacity than it was possible uh, before the networked age, before AI, before digital technologies. And that's the singularity where ontological design appears. For if it was always possible to design perception, today for the first time, this can be done with such scale and such impact that this is already involved in wars, in capitalism, and geopolitics. We are currently in the, in the middle of a scramble, the scramble for the newest sphere. And this is why we need ontological design. Finally, just a few words about our situation. Looking at the field of battle, at the field of competition, where the war machine becomes enmeshed with capitalism and technological innovation, I see two possible routes, two scenarios for the ontological creative. There will be mercenaries, people employing uh, the means that I will show you in a little bit, very more specifically, and we can have a conversation about that, the actual specifics for how to, for lack of a better term, brainwash people. But there will be a big a big uh, uh, incentive to design muck, reality to, to muck realities, to create abusive cults for profit, realities for sale. Basically, ontological design has the risk of becoming a, a design thinking method to design technologies of domination. On the other hand, however, there's another route, which is probably a little bit more fun, a little bit less safe. Creativity towards death. What does this mean? It's feedbacking. Okay. It means that in order to 
conceive of this, we need to risk suffering the absurdity of the cosmos. Um, basically, it means that we are going, as we are going to be able to design realities, we need to understand that we're going to be lost. We can design a reality where we become lost, where we become lost in a hall of mirrors. Uh, we are not helpless. My suggestion is we become initiated in this practice that is a little bit risky. It's the creativity towards death, a practice of voluntarily suspending disbelief, pretending to believe in stories that we choose or that we ourselves create. This is a little bit of a shamanic creative practice. I mean, how else could we design realities if we cannot at least trial run them in ourselves, right? You would be a mercenary if you're designing them and pushing them onto other people. But I suggest we become initiated and learn to step into them ourselves, risk that madness. Yes, we can lose ourselves. Yes, we can become confused. We can find ourselves confronted with the ugly sides of ourselves with madness, but that is the essence of creativity. And that's where ontological design becomes a message about the philosophy of creativity and not so much a message about brainwashing. Because yes, to be lost is the essence of being alive, to be confused, to be in struggle is the essence of incarnation. So in a situation where we don't know where we are, we don't know which reality is true. We don't know which way is up. I say the creation is not only a possibility, but an ethical necessity. Now, we will fail. We will be defeated. That is the first given. We're not going to win. There are no perfect realities where we can relax in a heaven on earth type scenario. There's only the beautifully ugly struggle of the search. Today, wars are fought over perception. Okay? That's the scramble for reality. As a countermeasure, true rebels, true individuals or free people, if there is such a thing, should design their own perceptions or should at least be aware that perception is designable. My suggestion is not to try to make the world make more sense, but to increase our capacity for handling senselessness, to thrive in this nihilistic absurdity, to enjoy its madness, and thereby, and only thereby, learn to see the, the beauty that exists in stepping into other realities. There are billions and billions of potential realities. Not, no one of them is correct. All of them are wrong, incredibly wrong, incredibly, incredible failures, beautiful failures. We should be continually discovering them, creating lines of, creating lines of flight away from our degradation at the hands of other reality designers, of the muck realities that are coming for you, that are already here chasing us. And we need to be continually discovering new realities. I know this is not for most people, but there will be an increasingly, an increasing demand for this kind of nomadic class, shamanic class, not nomadic in terms of physical reality, but in terms of reality configurations. The mind tense in which these people could potentially live, they're going to be shifting and shifting and shifting. As the era of AI allows subjectivity to become a creative project, the greatest artists will create perception itself. That's going to be the great artwork, the human. Humanity itself will forever be changed because of that. That's the prize of the arms race, but also of the arts race. To design a future worth living for mankind or to be able to. 
we are we could think that we are like pioneers gentlemen in a new continent the continent of the interconnected networked minds it's just the first decade we don't know what the fuck we're doing but in that capacity of not knowing we must dare explore we must dare lose ourselves in that process so that our feats and our lives are not so much a footnote in the conclusion of a dying era but the preface for a brave new one we're pioneers hopefully so gentlemen it was a pleasure speaking to you you can find more detail on this subject or on my book on the website www.fraga.space or by scanning this code and as we reach the end of this presentation and before we jump into the q a i i want to leave this slide up and i want to just finish with the pragmatics just in case you guys are interested these are some of the means and some of the fields of applicability of ontological design, okay? Practical things that can be used in a very specific strict sense as a creative discipline, which are all at our disposal today for those who actually wanna design subjectivity, whether you're in a design studio at home, if you're an insurrection, if you're a geopolitical uh, agent, if you just wanna make money, these are things that are in the arsenal, 